0: Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha and welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Today we have Angela Correll on the line. Hi, Angela. Thanks for joining.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk. Me too. I'm glad we finally got a chance to connect. Thanks for stopping
0: me briefly at ABAI. That was so wonderful to see people in person again. Um, But before we begin and jump into the conversation, why don't we start by having you give an introduction of yourself to our listeners?
1: Okay. Um, So uh, just a little bit about myself and um, kind of my unique history. Um, So I would say that you also may uh, find my work under several different names. So um, you could, my, my married name is um, Correll. So I am a licensed psychologist in Texas, and um, but I practice behavior analysis and will be adding a BCBA credential as soon as I can test for it. Um, so I already did those other pieces and value the credential. Um, I would say that um, you should also look for um, Angela Kathy or Angela Burgess if you wanna find um, My work over the years. Um, So, um, just a brief introduction. I I came to behavior analysis kind of the backwards way. Um, So, it was really kind of shown the light through lots of experiences in clinical psychology that were really aggravating in many ways. Um, So, I um, came to clinical psychology wanting to be a process and outcomes researcher. Was fully intent on kind of going into academia and doing um, therapy outcomes research. And um, wanting to do important research that helped and people suffer less. Um, and my experience um, was a little bit complicated in in many respects, where I learned that the contingencies of academia do not really suggest do not always support um, doing meaningful work um, in your early career or um, or getting promoted in in those um, situations by doing work that really matters versus doing lots of publications. Um, So I had that experience. I also um, found that as I was training in clinical psychology that um, I was really focused on one particular area um, so exposure and response prevention or desensitization um, for anxiety and related disorders. Um, and I picked that area because it was something that um, basically all of the different therapeutic camps agreed worked, but they had all did, had different ideas about how it worked. So I went and studied with um, different specialists. Um, so ACT specialists, um, cognitive behavioral, like Beckian specialists, I went and worked with um, experts in functional analytic psychotherapy, um, so I had all of those experiences, and even worked under um, psychoanalytic supervisor. And I had a lot of experiences where um, clinicians in clinical psychology really um, weren't as data based. Um, they weren't able to really communicate. Uh, across lines and see the value of what someone was doing because they didn't share any common language. Um, So in those learning experiences, and also just going back to the literature in clinical psychology, I was having some really frustrating experiences. Um, At the time I was working um, in higher level treatment of PTSD. Um, So day treatment, IOP treatment of of severe severe PTSD. And um, A lot of the clinical psychology research um, was randomized controlled trials, group research. And the person in front of me was never the ideal RCT person. They had all these very real problems and complications. And this um, nomothetic approach of looking at people as a group, it just just didn't work. I, I really went back to relational frame theory. I went to behavior analysis and I had to Um, piece together and I ended up in clinical behavior analysis just really thinking like we have to look at this ideographically we have to be database Um, we can't be losing the benefits of what works in different camps because people just um, end up shaped by their particular advisor experiences and that's what they think is of value but nothing from any other camp Um, so I would say that that kind of those experiences deeply drove me towards clinical behavior analysis and trying to unify psychology with behavior analysis. I'm honestly kind of consider myself a double agent in some ways because um, I really wanna change psychology with behavior analysis um, and vice versa a little bit. And so trying to help behavior analysts move out of just being able to work in autism, get funded working in other areas because obviously that's not the limits to the scope there and we don't want it to become that way. Um, But in psychology, we have so many different camps that don't talk to each other, don't see the value of each other's work. And if they use behavior analytic language to back up and talk about what's going on, they would be able to learn from each other. Um, So I think there's a lot of opportunity in the integration of psychology and behavior analysis and that's, that's really one of my biggest passion is, is speaking about clinical behavior analysis and how we can move these fields forward so that we're providing better treatment to clients. Wow. Thank you
0: so much for sharing that and for undertaking such a diverse and complicated, I would say, journey. That's a lot of education and a lot of experience, which I think is going to really lend to a very exciting conversation today about what that looks like in practice and And how, again, you've evolved into being the practitioner or the clinician or the the researcher or that you are today. You've mentioned a couple of times clinical behavior analysis, um, you know, specifically. Is there more that you would say about that or clarify
1: what that means for our listeners? Um, I I mean, there are different definitions of it, but I kind of lean on like um, dower and um, some of the old definitions. So I, I consider anything clinical behavior analysis that is guided by functional analysis and there, there's data collection. We are tracking the function of, of what we're doing and, um, and that we're looking at it ideographically. We're um, looking at the contextual variables that are influencing our client's behavior. Um, so I, I don't as often say that I am an ACT therapist anymore. Depends on my audience. Um, I trained with one of the founders of of ACT, and um, so good 15, 20 years worth of ACT um, training, uh, but I don't really like to identify myself as an ACT therapist, um, functional analytic psychotherapy, um, as it was originally um, developed. I would say that's clinical behavior analysis. Um, So there are lots of therapeutic techniques or modalities that can fall within that. and I would say that clinical behavior analysis does apply to autism, but what the when I say it, I'm typically um, referring to uh, behavior analytic principles used to treat things that are typically considered mental health problems. So there's-
0: Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I think that clarification is really helpful. Um, and I know so many of the audience members are excited to talk about how we can be behavior analysts in other branches of psychology, education, or related fields, and how we can have an opportunity to take what we know, what we've, what we've learned, of course, continue to learn and grow and expand those competencies, uh, competencies but to take that not just for helping individuals um, on the spectrum or, or autistic, autistic individuals. Tell me a little bit about like, what your day-to-day looks like and what your role is and what, and what you do. Oh, my
1: goodness. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you, if like, you can. <laughs> well, none of my team members in him right now. They would all be laughing. But tell me what your day looks like. Um, so I, I'm i a mother of nine-year-olds. So that alters my schedule um, quite a bit. Um, and I'm an entrepreneur, an unexpected entrepreneur. So in that whole process of, uh, of learning that academia was not the place for me, I ended up doing a National Science Foundation i core program to train me on business principles, and I launched my own business, Um, first starting by just treating um, individual sessions and then building it up and building the higher level programs that were kind of equivalent to what I'd worked in previously, but much more behavior analytic. Um, So my day-to-day involves a lot of um, dealing with um, the OBM, HR, end of things, Um, I do a lot of staff training, I do a lot of staff supervision, I have an integrated team that includes um, licensed professional counselors, um, behavior analysts, um, uh, also uh, licensed psychological associates, um, and then as a clinical psychologist, so we, we also work as a team, not to just have those pieces together, but to really speak behavior analytically across lines so that we are really performing as an integrated team. Um, So my day is a little hectic. It's usually lots of people kind of coming in and either asking um, questions about our intensive clients that are pretty difficult. So um, we run a a higher level treatment program for um, severe anxiety and OCD. Um, So our clients are typically highly impaired um, to the point where they can't work, um, they can't um, go to school. They are struggling with eating, sleeping, you know, lots of different, you know, high-level impairments, Um, but they're generally high-level, highly verbal um, Mm. adults to teens. So that would be different from the usual environment that most behavior analysts work in. Um, So it's a pretty hectic environment. I do sometimes, like, I have a little sign for my door, like, Please don't talk to me right now because I need to concentrate. (laughs) Um, I I still like to do a lot of their conceptual and research work and collaborate um, with like University of of Lafayette. Um, And also I'm advocating um, with organizations in OCD treatment um, and work on immune space treatment to further, um payment for behavior analysts in these other areas um, by insurance. So um, it's pretty hectic, but um, I love that it keeps me active and shows me the integrated pieces. Um, and I'd also say that uh, Better Living Center for Behavioral Health is actually kind of a dual purpose type of meme um, for me. So it's very, um, it's kind of act and value space So we are trying to better the lives of our clients, but I'm also very focused on creating a work environment that supports clinicians. So I do also spend a lot of time meeting with staff members and trying to understand like, what are their stressors? um, You know, what's going on for them? Do I, you know, if I can be a little bit more flexible with the staff member who's had a baby just recently, like we need to do that because life is not all about work. It's about living a full life. So it's a bit of balancing everything. It's always a balancing act. And something that
0: really resonated with me is is talking about taking these principles and putting them into action in our own lives, you know, to help ourselves uh, as we're working within organizations, whether we've created those organizations, that accidental entrepreneur, or we have the opportunity to be leaders within organizations. Um, I find that what I'm hearing a lot, in particular in the field is, that, that's an area of really big need as well. And I can imagine there's a lot of barriers to that, just time, resources, energy, maybe, maybe even the, the skills might not be quite fully developed in the, in the leadership there or in the systems or in the systems. So that's something I think would be incredibly attractive, not just to behavior analysts who are practicing, but to people who are running their businesses, wondering like, how do I do more of that? Um, I'm certainly hearing a lot of compassion in the the leaders, like how do I help my clients and my teams and my staff, but there are restrictions and there are limitations. And I think that um, creating that space for, for your team at your organization is a really wonderful model and a great place to start. I appreciate that you mentioned that. Angela, you're located in Texas, is that correct? Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Uh-huh.
0: And so does Texas currently have like, what are, what are the laws there that pertain like licensure? Like how are you currently practicing and I also wanted to ask you a little bit about the funding, Um, maybe even just the need of like, how how do we increase that so that there are opportunities for people to really grow and go in these areas?
1: Well, since I came through behavior analysis a little bit backwards, so I'm a licensed psychologist um, and that allows me a little bit more freedom with um, growing our team. So we have a behavior analyst and um, we also have RBTs that work here as well. as behavior specialists, so they work in higher level, um, and they're kind of working with clients to kind of monitor them, do exposures with them, follow the treatment plan under the behavior analyst and myself, um, but because I have the psychologist licensure, I um, basically co-sign and protect their license in different areas, so if I know that there's like, okay, there's a suicide assessment, um, we use either the LPC or myself will do the suicide eval, and we co-sign on the note for the day. Um, so we use a lot of you know, the team approach to and understanding each other's scopes and strengths um, as something that we can kind of grow together in. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of that, um, and we also we've we tried insurance before, but um, there is a high need for this particular specialty. And um, so a lot of OCD centers like us, um, we're kind of newer and we've been in business four to five years on the ground here, higher level, um, and have just expanded. So um, most centers uh, that are like us that do exposure and response prevention, which you for behavior analysts would most often be kind of considered desensitization. So it's something that behavior analysts are already doing. Um, It's not foreign, it's not out of scope. Um, So getting behavior analysts into these situations in particular like, you know, where there's a psychologist or someone else that fully understands the scope and use of having behavior analysts there um, and co-signing for each other is really important, but um, there is a high need. There's a really high need for the high level treatment most centers have like an eight month waiting list for um, specialty like OCD and anxiety treatment at this level. Um, And I think that this type of treatment situation allows for a lot of um, flexibility in team growth. So I wouldn't typically like, you know, just your new behavior analyst or RBT, I'm not going to send them into like, okay, we have a you know, 30 year old, highly verbal adult, they've come out of like working in ABA with autism, that's gonna be really foreign for them. Mm -hmm. Um, But in higher level, we're having them work on exposures. There are several people in the room. Um, They're working through working with several different clients. And then the behavior analyst and myself are able to walk in at any point. So it's not kind of closed doors, 15 minutes, just a bunch of talking. Um, So it's very active, not what people think of psychotherapy as. And um, I would also say part of the opportunity, too, is knowing your your legal bounds and your problems. We don't use the word psychotherapy here. I don't do psychotherapy. Um, We do behavior change, and it's all about that, and it's all in our consents. It's all in our information. That word psychotherapy can get you in trouble. Um, So Mm. we don't want that confused with scope. Um, and getting attached to our behavior analysts. Um, We have been working with a number of universities. So we are um, building relationship both with um, University of Lafayette um, and Eastern Michigan University to bring in um, interns that come from clinical programs that have behavior analytic focus. Um, And then we have them for a year, six months, um, and they're able to kind of build up their skills and look at um, what's going on in mental health much more behaviorally. Um, so I think there's a lot of room. Uh, it has a lot to do with marketing, picking a niche too that there's a high need in. Um, and then just having a little bit of uh, safety with like a partner that really understands your value kind of co-signing that goes a long way. Um, if you're working with you know high lawsuit type of, Uh, population or anything like that but there's there's a lot of opportunity out there it's just really getting people who who recognize the value of um, behavior analysis and there's a lot of them out there get in touch with like the act community Um, you'll find a lot of hot spots for folks that are really deeply rft but they're working in clinical work as well so it's out there and it's out there Sorry.
0: No, yeah, it's out there, people wanna find it. I, I, I think that's very inspirational to be you know quite frank and direct and what a wonderful opportunity for students enrolled at those programs. Again, that was like Lafayette I think and you said Eastern Michigan. Yes. So there's opportunities before people are graduating from some programs and as we continue to increase that then people are gonna fully understand not just the behavioral principles and the concepts but they're going to be actively expanding their scope while it's being developed. And it's something that we're always looking to expand and refresh and be current with. I just appreciate how you've emphasized that a lot of the behavioral principles um, allow us to have the knowledge to tackle other scenario situations or support other populations. But again, with a mentor, with some training, with support or with a partner, really great that you emphasize like, hey, it's, it's, it's scary, it's not only risky, it's scary to kind of do these things alone and on your own. And we really do want that protection. We want people to be doing it ethically, accurately, and we want them to be doing it you know more, draw more people into th- this opportunity. You are reminding me, and I hope you don't mind that I share this brief story with you and our listeners of, of a really unique conversation I had once years ago with a educational philosopher. I was assigned to research a philosopher uh, educational theorists. There were, you know, John, P- P- there was Piaget and Dewey and Vygotsky and Skinner. Um, but they wouldn't assign me Skinner because I had already started working with a child with autism and my undergraduate. And they were like, no, you're already learning that for work or fun. And I was assigned Jerome Bruner and I had looked him up, read a little bit about him, but you know, the uh, internet started to be a thing and emails were sh- just starting. And I searched, And I found this person who had this name and I was like, no way, they are all deceased, right? I just imagined it was just a bunch of like Plato and and Socrates, (laughs) not, not people, you know, living in the 90s and so forth. And I ended up emailing him and I asked him this question. I said, you know, given your history and your experiences now, years and decades from when you wrote this book, would would you change your philosophy of education? It was specifically referring to educational approaches. And his he wrote me back, <laughs> which I was like, I think I framed it, it was like one of my first emails. And um, he wrote me back to my university account and he said, Thank you for your question. Basically, to be quite honest, he said, pick them like you would choose a husband, which one's gonna get you through tough times and rough sledding. And basically what I took from the conversation was what works with what's in front of you. And I appreciate that. Again, you made that point. You were like, Hey, this is great information. This tells me a lot that I need to know, but it doesn't necessarily translate to the person in front of me. And that doesn't mean we throw that other approach out. It means we need something else to enhance what we already know and what we're doing. And I just appreciated that he was willing to like deviate from his original like stance. It wasn't like, no, do this. I still believe this is the 100% way to go. It was really like, look at what's in front of you and decide what works. And so I feel like you just gave that same message to, to everybody here on the call. Thank you for that.
1: Yeah.
0: That's a lovely story. Well, <laughs> thanks. I hadn't thought about it in a while. Um, what information, what resources, what websites, is there tools people can go who want to start learning more, who are super excited because they heard you today on the podcast and now they're like, now what? What would you say? What would, what would you say to them?
1: Um, well, definitely contact us. Um so you can contact us from behaviorbehavior.org. So it's behavior-behavior.org. Um we offer consultation, supervision. Um, we also offer continuing education. Um, if you are closer to Texas and Dallas and you want to come do an internship, you want to work on our team, um, give us a contact at Better Living Center for Behavioral Health. Um, so those are resources. Um, I would also say that there are, there are a few other hotspots for this. So, um, there's another anxiety clinic, um, that, um, so Lisa Coyne, who is very big in ACT, is very heavily behavior analytic. Um, she has a number of facilities, um, kind of. Hooked to, it's called New England OCD and Anxiety. Um, but they have centers in Boston, Los Angeles. Um, they do trainings for behavior analysts. They have behavior on the team as well. Um, I believe they're using um, behavior specialists or, or registered behavior technicians as well. Um, so that, um, looking on um, the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science website, getting on those listservs. Now, there will be kind of a lot of therapy talk that happens there. Don't let the you know mentalistic talk drive you off at first. Um, so those organizations are really helpful for finding, like, if you can find the people, the hotspots for you know, integration of behavior analysis. Um, and then besides that, I would really say, like, um, find yourself a mentor, find someone that, you know, wants to grow you and, and really understands the area. I was supremely lucky in um, my experience of, you know, I just at some point got frustrated with all of the science and started writing these really crazy blogs about how I saw um, relational frame theory and um, the state of the science. And it just so happened that those went kind of, they, they got to a lot more people that um, I didn't expect and I started getting comments from them and all of a sudden it was like oh okay there's a whole segment of people so I'd say put yourself out there put your beliefs out there and those people that are like you are going to find you and um, those are incredible relationships that they're incredibly validating um, they're great mentor relationships and can really hook you into opportunities um, far beyond what you think. Um, is possible, and I'd also say the International OCD Foundation is part of um, the group that is promoting evidence-based care of OCD and anxiety disorders, Um, so exposure and response prevention, and they are um, recognizing behavior analysts, so they're starting to let behavior analysts sign up as professional members, which we fought for because I got so feisty about that, Um, I wouldn't let my team behavior analyst in as a professional member. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's fully licensed and able to treat. This is well within scope. Um, so there were discussions about that and um, it seems like that's really moving forward. And so there's a way in which, you know, showing up these conferences um, and we're going to keep giving talks about this too. So they're going to be um, seeing the the benefit of having a behavior analyst on their staff. So keep um, Keep in touch <laughs> yeah that's a wonderful and
0: plethora tons of resources and information i don't think that i was aware of even how much was out there it is great to give everybody an opportunity of where to begin where to sample start reading go to a conference join a listserv, respond to a comment on the listserv write a blog share your opinion you're not alone i really appreciate that message i think that really again resonates with me and some of my experiences the first article I ever published was because I responded with some thoughts on a listserv and I was like you know I don't completely agree with that point or I do agree but have you thought about it in this setting or I was living in a different state than they were and I thought I was just having an email exchange you know with everyone on the listserv and and what it turned into was an invite to work on a publication talking about licensure and you know it's so interesting because that was 2008 and in 2022 I've done quite a bit with licensure so who knew and who knows what path that can put people on as long as they start participating. That advice to put yourself out there is such great advice. And of course, I know, I know it can be very difficult for people to do. So again, those avenues of listservs, there may be an email, you know, you don't always have to be big and, and verbose, um, especially in the beginning, especially if that's not within people's comfort zone. So thank you for sharing That there's lots of different ways to enter into this special interest. Before we end today, I do want to ask, is there anything else that you want to touch on or emphasize for our listeners, share, give them as take-home
1: points? Um, I would say the one thing that I really want people to keep in mind is like, if we have the mission of like unifying the sciences to, to, to improve care um, for mental health clients, um, and also to improve what's a recognized scope of behavior analysts, be patient. Be patient and willing to learn from each other because there is, I mean, these types of things take five years, 10 years to really mount and change, but there is a way to change. And there are more and more talks showing up at these conferences at ABAI, at ACBS, um, at in the International OCD Foundation, where we are literally saying like, you need to pay attention to doing a functional analysis. You need to even do these things. There are these talks. So um, notice that the wave is coming. I know it feels a little painfully slow sometimes, but I consider what I'm doing a lifetime mission, any kind of dent I can make that someone can carry on. That's great. Um, so yeah, patience and be open to learn from everybody.
0: Patience and perseverance, right? We'll get us where, it's
1: gotten us where we're at and hopefully
0: it'll propel us forward into the future as we move in that direction. Angela, thank you so much for joining and sharing your knowledge with me and with our listeners today. Certainly, we want to make sure that everyone has access to these resources, so we'll include them when we when we get this information out there and make sure that people can access it because I know they're going to be eager. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about applied behavior analysis, feel free to pop on over to www.behaviorbabe.com.